everyone. Thanks for joining us today on Cohen Esri Apartment Investors, CEAI, um, our apartment investing podcast. Today, we've got Ryan Huffman, who's our Chief Operating Officer, and Lee Harris, who's our President and CEO, and also Matthew Von Indy, our special guest. He's our Vice President of Acquisitions today. My name's Lydia Kincaid, and I'm the Managing Director for our Market Rate Funds with MCEAI. Um, today, we're going to go through a case study one of the properties in our portfolio that we bought a few years ago and ultimately ended up selling last year. Um, this is quite an interesting story with a few twists along the way. So we'll start by talking about what initially um, attracted us to this deal. And it's in Nebraska, of all places, which many people might not think that's a very hot market. But we found some information through our due diligence and market analysis process. Um, Ryan, maybe you could launch us and would love to hear some more of those details, Matt, from you as well. Yeah, you know, Link, th this is a really interesting deal. So Lydia, you asked a question of what attracted us to it. And the funny story is it came in the first time and I said no. <laughs> it came in the second time and I said no. And it came in the third time and I said no. And by the fourth time, uh, our partner, Tom Warren, said, we're going to Lincoln. Um, which is is interesting and and you know people say well why did you say no well I said no for a couple of reasons one this is it's a big deal it's actually the biggest deal we had done at the time it's 612 units and it had a golf course so <laughs> golf courses weren't something that were in our in our tree of knowledge and so we we originally weren't interested but really what got us interested was was the story on Lincoln. And Matt, why don't you take the helm for a minute and tell everybody what we found about Lincoln that made us go, all right, we're going to go bid on this deal. That's a great point. So yeah, Lincoln up and down the line um, was sort of on the periphery for us, just mainly for the sole reason that it was too small. So originally it was in what we would call sort of a second tier uh, uh, target market. When we dug in at our partner's insistence, uh, we really started to find the the juice in the in the MSA there. So just some of the highlights of Lincoln, for example, um, it's anchored by both the state capital and the the leading university, the University of Nebraska at Lincoln, uh, with an economic impact uh, locally and statewide, like well well into the nine figure range. Um, historically, very very low levels of unemployment. This is true when you look back through history, whether or not it was the dot com bubble or the great financial crisis of 0708, most recently during COVID-19, Lincoln sort of has this, this trend line of, of uh, steady eddy um, really throughout the, the market volatility uh, nationwide. Um, we also were attracted to the fact that it was an immediate opportunity to scale up in a new market. Um, certainly there were challenges posed by the golf courts operations, which we can dive into here in a moment, uh, but 612 units is immediate scale. It offers us the ability to to form a team um, day one that can can really have both a long bench uh, and the ability to to assist with the renovation program as needed. Um, so high level, those are some of the highlights. We we love the fact that it's low cost. We love the fact that it's a business friendly, low tax environment. And we love the fact that you can execute a value add strategy, and this is really the kicker for us. Where post renovation you're at a rent to income ratio of, of maybe 15 or 16% against the median uh, household incomes in, in, that, uh, in that area. So just all up and down the line, we, we were really attracted to the market fundamentals of Lincoln, Nebraska. And so we went ahead and you know started figuring out how to put this deal together. And we found a new capital partner, Blue Vista Capital out of Chicago um, that wanted to do this deal. They're a REIT. 
So what we ended up doing is closing this deal in three different partnerships, all with the same structuring. Um, but we had the apartments in one partnership. We had the golf course separated it in another partnership. And then we had a parcel of land that came with the property in the third partnership that we kept out of the collateral um, of the loan. So um, that's how we structured the deal. Um, what was really fascinating about this deal was that the seller builds these properties all over the country and <clears throat> they are focused on cash flow. So the rents were artificially low. We're talking they were doing $5 increases because their up and down the line compensation and focus is occupancy and cash flow. So there was already natural lift in the market. They also build these golf courses attached to every one of their properties in, the, in their brand. And they use those golf courses as a de facto amenity. So what we did is we ended up hiring a management company to just exclusively manage the golf course. Um, and it was a great success for us because the way we structured that is our underwriting had the golf course was about $150,000 drag on the NOI a year. We underwrote a neutralization in two years. And so since we just had it neutral, the way we structured our agreement was the management company got a fee, they covered the grounds, but then they got the juice if they got it to break even and higher. And so they were incentivized to get us to that break even, which they ended up doing or getting, getting incredibly close plus to, to do that. And they brought in all kinds of things that we would not have thought about tournaments, um, you know, increase the membership, change the membership structure. And so that was a positive outcome. So, you know, lessons learned on this deal are interesting and, and one very big one that came about. So we learned on this deal when we took over the, the property, um, our partners asset management group got really aggressive with rent increases because they saw just a natural lift that was there and it caused a destabilization of the property. Um, occupancy started falling um, and it interfered with our, our ability to do the renovation program. We had to halt that and, and get into leasing mode. Um, and so now I say that because we learned a valuable lesson. So today, after that deal, when we take over a property, we don't do anything for the first 60 days except exterior renovation and run the property as is, where is. Um, get to know it, get to know the residents, get the team acclimated. Uh, do the model so that we know kind of supply chain issues, which we're all experiencing right now, timelines that'll take to get renovations done. And we're experimenting with renewal increases to get to that, what I call the equilibrium of 50% turnover ratio, which is what our models project uh, for us to get our renovation plan done in two, two and a half years. On day 61, we throw a big open house. We've got the new exterior amenities ready. Everything looks good. For the residents, we roll out the renovated units and then we start marketing them and, and turning them. And it's really proven to be a huge success to keep properties on the up and up. And I always say, we've talked a lot on these podcasts, every transaction, you learn something. And what you should do is learn and modify your platform so that you can be better on the next deal. And you always should learn. There should never be a time where we say, man, we did that perfect. If we did it perfect, then we're, we're not in learning mode and we always want to be doing things different. So um, it, 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 was a, it was a rocky transition. We had a rocky first year, but it swung back out. Uh, and ultimately we sold it and had the largest transaction in the state of Nebraska's history. So really, really good story for us. Right. And I think part of that too, 
um, part of that shift in success there was really the on-site management as well. I mean, I remember sitting in these asset management meetings and just talking about how important the on-site property manager is. And um, we finally had a stable staff, if I'm remembering correctly as well. And that really helped make things happen for the property. Um, Lee, what else would you like to add to this transaction? And as we've gone through this case study, uh, so one of the things that to our, our model typically anticipates is a five-year holding period. Uh, in this case, it was just shy of four years. Now, why would we have gone ahead and sold when we did? And what we looked at in concert with our primary equity investor, our LP, was, is there any more juice left in this, uh, in this deal? And Ryan, you alluded to that, but I think that that's... Uh, somewhat a unique situation where it just didn't look like there was that much more upside. Uh, was there a downside to hold the property longer? Not, probably not, uh, but it was certainly advantageous at that point, um, particularly after the struggle that we had uh, in the beginning and to have it flip around like we did. Uh, and and we sold it at a at about a 19% uh, annualized rate of return for our investors, which uh, is tremendous. It's, it's actually uh, right on, I think that was right on the money uh, for what we had projected on a five-year hold. And like I said, we, we sold it just short, I think a couple months short of uh, a four-year hold. So I think that that's, uh, that's kind of an interesting departure from our normal uh, holding period that's worth noting. You know, Lee, you brought up something really interesting that we should just touch on here. And that is, this is not bad or, or a criticism. It's just advice as a sponsor. Make sure you understand your equity partner a lot. And I say that because one of the things that came up for us, we talk about the hold period and it didn't come up until we were in a discussion with the LP about, you know, is it a right time to sell? Let's get some opinions of value. Their fund had a trigger in it. And the trigger was if they got to a place where the fund was 50% sold, they were required to trigger full liquidation of their fund. Now, that didn't mean they had to sell everything right away, but it did have to mean they had to start moving their assets in that fund into a, a sale mode. And they were hitting that point in this fund. And you know, it, it did teach us to ask a question about those funds. And, and Lee, you might have more thought on that, but really understanding you know, equity is one thing, but understanding kind of their back office should be really important to the sponsor because you could get yourself into a situation where you're required to sell it because they've got to wind it down and maybe it's not the right time. And so I think just asking those questions should be really important for any. Yeah, yeah I think I think that's right. And, and Lydia could speak to that as our fund manager uh, for our, our co-investment funds. Uh, fortunately, we've designed those funds such that we don't have uh, the same kind of finite life and the same sort of very restrictive nature to, uh, to those funds that uh, some of the LPs have. Uh, so flexibility is critical, particularly in this volatile environment we're in right now, uh, especially right now. When we sold this property last year, we didn't understand where the volatility was going to actually end up. Uh, and, and you might just spend a second here, even though it's a little bit of a departure, Ryan, from, from this case study, uh, talking a, a little bit about how the market has changed uh, somewhat here in the last, I don't know, let's say the last four months. 
<laughs> four months is a long time. It's you might talk about the last week. <laughs> four days, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it really. We're in a very volatile period in the market. Um, you know what's happening with the Fed and monetary tightening and and their ultimate policy positions they're taking, particularly with rate increases, has really wreaked havoc on the debt markets. And, you know, as a total industry, we've enjoyed, what, Lee, about 10 years of low interest rates. And, you know, a lot of the, what I call the old, the old guard is used to this, and the new guard has always had low interest rates and doesn't know what to do with, with rising rate environments. Um, but it is causing debt resizing, you know, Matt can speak a little bit in a minute about what where we're seeing rates going. Um, but what we are seeing in the pricing area is buyers are reacting to the situation very rapidly. This happens every cycle. Buyers will react very rapidly um, to the changing environment, and it's causing anywhere between a 5 and a 10% reduction in pricing from where the BOVs were maybe even 60 days ago. Um, and a lot of that is driven by the fact that they can't get the debt instruments they could get and the debt resizing is there. And as we've talked about on these podcasts, debt is cheaper than equity. Um, and so it does put pressure on yields when you get into those environments. And, you know, we're also seeing either back to token hard earnest money or no earnest money being put up on transactions, both on the buy and sell side. And that's, again, a hedge for what could possibly be coming with further Fed tightening. I mean, Matt, talk a little bit about what we're seeing with the rate environment right now, as fluctuational as it is. Fluctuational is, is a generous term. It's yeah, it's what, what's going on here is, is we're starting to breach into a new territory here where it's not just the impact where the impact is not just on the back end yields. What's really starting to happen is this divergence between buyers reacting to the Fed policy and the increasing in the rate in, in rates and sellers still changing price points from three, four, or five months ago. Where the, where the divergence is, is having an effect on the deal profile isn't on the returns, it's actually on the operations. So as lenders are starting to not only raise rates in tandem with the increases and the heights from Washington, D.C., but then later on top of that widening spreads, you're really what you're dealing with is an operational deficiency where whereas you could have maybe absorbed uh, you know, 50, 60 to 100 basis points on the back end. What we're facing now is can we pay the debt service coverage? Right. Year one. And so it's it's really is in that respect a game changer. And so what we're doing is 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 well, one of two things. One, working with some of our prior preferred lenders to see what sort of workarounds exist. Um, we have a really attractive potential product from out of a debt fund out of New York that's still offering pretty uh, in, in a historical sense, pretty low interest rates on fixed rate product to sort of mitigate that the risk of, of taking things down on bridge. And then the second strategy, which we've used uh, to success on some of the most recent acquisitions we took down on floating rate debt structures is buying an interest rate cap. So that at the very, at the very least, what you have is you know the ceiling and you know what the return profile looks like when you do your stress testing internally uh, under the, the worst case scenario. Um, so those two strategies are, are helping us at least uh, navigate what is probably a, a wild time that will continue to get a little bit wilder for the foreseeable future in the debt markets. Now, now that said, uh, you talked about divergence, and there's a huge divergence uh, with respect to market demand. Uh, and I'm talking about at the resident level. Uh, unlike cycles that this old guy has seen many times in the past. The old uh, guard. The old, the old guard. guard. That's right. 
This, this one is a bit different because we don't have overbuilding in the marketplace. Uh, nowhere in the country are we overbuilt. Uh, we have uh, in the past had issues with single family homes as competition uh, that we that really provided a rent governor, if you will. That does not exist right now because single family home production is not caught up with where it was pre-Great Recession back in 2006, 2007, when uh, home production was, was just off the charts. We're nowhere close to that. So uh, that's an issue uh, that's not on the table now. Uh, and uh, we've seen rent increases that are gigantic. I mean, we, we have been projecting rents at, at three, four percent, uh, sometimes a little less than that in our models over a period of five year holdings. Uh, and we're getting double digit rent increases in some cases, which is uh, completely different than cycles past. Uh, so single family is not the competition it once was. Uh, uh, rents are, are, are way, way up and continue to escalate. Uh, occupancy, when we do a model, we're what, 92, 93% economic occupancy, Matt, maybe less. And we're now realizing economic occupancies that are in excess of 95, 96, 97%. Again, not something we've seen in previous cycles. Household formations are huge. Uh, we, we, for the last 10 years, seen about 1.15 million household formations each year. In 2021, it was 1,450,000 household formations. So uh, the, the demographics, we've said this on previous podcasts, we'll say it again, demographics here are just pushing the demand factor off the charts. So we really have a divergence in this cycle when uh, we, we look at what's happening with the debt markets and what's happening with the, the pricing of uh, a purchase of an apartment community versus what's going on in the uh, operation of that property where rents are concerned, where occupancies are concerned, where demand is concerned by the resident uh, residents that occupy our properties. Yeah, Lee, you made a good point about being able to increase rental rates, um, double digits in a lot of cases. How sustainable is that now um, with well, all that's going on? And what do you think is going to happen with that? Well, I think that it's sustainable to a point, uh, but it's it, it some, I mean, you've seen wage growth in this country. And one of the things that we're uh, fortunate to, to have as part of our program is uh, a focus on markets where there is job growth and there's wage growth uh, that's more than what the, the, the national average actually would be. And so fortunately on the properties that, that, that we're acquiring, uh, we, we haven't hit that tipping point yet where residents can no longer afford. Uh, and, and by the way, that's evidenced by our delinquency factor, which uh, was relatively low during COVID and continues to, to be strong, our, our collections are strong. Uh, but, but the marketplace generally cannot sustain 10%, 15% rent increases year over year over year. So somewhere that's gonna have to dial back. We do not make those kind of projections in our models. And uh, so that's a margin of safety for us. Even if we're able to get more, we don't project more. 
And I think, Lydia, I'll add to that. One of the things we have recently added to our review queue on data sets, and Matt touched on this a little bit in Lincoln, but it's a new metric we're looking at is post-renovation rents um, as a percentage of average incomes in the area. So he alluded to Lincoln being at 15. You know, we really are focused on that to another mitigation tactic, Lee, that you mentioned to risk which is, you know, if we start seeing those get into the 35% range, we're starting to get nervous about the deal. Um, and it, it'll, it'll push the pause button. We're really targeting kind of that 25 to 35 range is what we're looking at post-renovation to make sure that we're, we're guarded against that potential slow. I mean, we call it a slowdown, but I think it's going to norm, go back to more normalized rent increases. I don't see anything in the data set unless Lee does that's showing you're going to have, you know, in a recessionary environment, you're going to have the us go the other way with, with rent collapse. I think it's going to just normalize back to that kind of 3% average lifts as we go forward. That's what I'm seeing in demand factors. Yeah. And I think that uh, you, you would expect that if class A rents or class B rents, we play in the B space generally, uh, if you see those rents getting too high, well, you would think, okay, people are going to move down the, the, the spectrum to class C, class D. The problem is class C and class D properties are full too. Uh, so then you're looking at some doubling up. You're looking at people moving back home, young, young people moving back home to mom and dad. Um, but we have a housing crisis in this country right now. It's been building for years. Uh, we're just not producing enough. We can't build enough apartments. Uh, we need 450,000 units a year and have needed that for the last 10 or 15 years. And if we're lucky, we might get 325 to 350,000 units, uh, new units that are completed each year. And so again, this, this problem, especially with household formations such as they are, uh, it, it's, it's not abating anytime soon. And so this is a completely different cycle than we've ever seen in the, in the past. Well, guys, this has been great. Thanks for the case study on fairways at Lincoln and also for these additional market insights. I think our listeners are really getting a lot of, um, a lot of new learnings out of this. So thank you everyone for listening. We'll talk to you next time. <laughs>